Yeah, I think that our intolerance for discomfort, and especially here in the West where we've been sort of trained that discomfort is something to be avoided at all costs, right? And we have to come up with these strategies to not feel and to perform happiness. Um, when we can't tolerate discomfort, we can't actually stay present to the information that we need to assess what's actually going on. And, and in a very normal way, when we are in overwhelm or terror, we're gonna wanna grasp at the quickest way to feel better. And things like the environmental crisis and a global pandemic do not have a quick fix. And in fact, from my understanding of these things, the fix is actually deep, deep structural change, deep culture change, reprioritizing everything, re you know, reimagining everything. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. This week's Courageous Conversation is with Hala Kori, a brilliant yoga teacher and somatic counselor specializing in trauma. She wrote a book called Peace from Anxiety, which I would imagine is most people's desire these days. One of the things I've been thinking about leading up to this conversation is how hurt people hurt people. And given that people make up systems, it's no wonder they're so fucked up and harmful. But if we can become more informed about how trauma lives in all of us, perhaps we can skillfully navigate our personal and collective hurt and work towards healing and repair. In this podcast, Hala asks, how good are we at repair? Because unless we get good at that, we can't be in this messiness and stay united. This podcast is about trauma and anxiety, but it's also about how we take care of ourselves and one another, how we navigate the chaos of this moment with creativity, and how we practice change in small and big ways. Check it out. Welcome to the podcast, Halakori. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, this has been a long time coming. I've been wanting to talk to you about all the things for so long. And I actually feel like now is the perfect time for this conversation. I agree. Absolutely. So I want to begin just with a like um, a presencing to this particular moment that we are in. What are you noticing and learning about anxiety and stress in a time where we're navigating simultaneous pandemics and and everyday crises? Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it feels really chaotic. You know, what I'm noticing is, and I, I, I don't like to make generalizations because people are having such different experiences of this moment based on so many factors, internal and external. But I think that I'm thinking a lot about meaning making and the ways that we use meaning making to make sense of the world so that we can navigate our anxiety. And what I see is this collective crisis in meaning making. We have people who literally have different versions of reality fighting with each other. And I think that folks are trying to figure out how to navigate this moment, this global crisis and how it impacts them personally. And so it feels like a lot of chaos right now. Um, 
And what I see is that when we when we don't have the tools, when we don't have sort of the information to or the map, um, we start to see all of this infighting with each other, um, in group, out group, and I'm seeing it happen in families, between loved ones, and in communities. Um, and I'm also seeing the opposite happen. I'm also seeing folks realizing the places where they have resilience, realizing the tools that they have. So I don't want to just be like in the negative about it because I think that there's also a really positive upswell. But I think chaotic, whether it's creative chaos or destructive chaos are both what I'm seeing. Do you feel like this this comes from a general intolerance to hold the reality and even like the complexity of, of our situation. I'm just thinking about like how overwhelming the climate crisis is right now, especially given that like there's very real, you know, present visceral evidence like every day, right, of the consequences of what we've done to this planet um, and what might be coming, right, whether it's heat waves or wildfires or floods. Um, and then you have the pandemic, which is like this sort of ongoing, ever mutating, never ending, um, terrifying, you know, um, infection um that uh, so i'm just like wondering like do you think that 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 chaos right whether it's creative or destructive stems from our inability to to be present <laughs> with what is yeah i think that our intolerance for discomfort and especially here in the west where we've been sort of trained that discomfort is something to be avoided at all costs right and we have to come up with these strategies to not feel and to perform happiness um, when we can't tolerate discomfort, we can't actually stay present to the information that we need to assess what's actually going on. And, and in a very normal way, when we are in overwhelm or terror, we're going to want to grasp at the quickest way to feel better. And things like the environmental crisis and a global pandemic do not have a quick fix. And in fact, from my understanding of these things, the fix is actually deep, deep structural change, deep culture change, reprioritizing everything, re, you know, reimagining everything. So the solution is like this really long-term thing. So how do we deal with our moments of terror and crisis, fear, right? Rightly so. People are grieving the loss of loved ones, the loss of businesses and homes, both with the climate and with the pandemic. So we have this really tricky situation where it's like the wound is bleeding and we need a Band-Aid and we have to address the long-term cause of these continuous wounds. So it's asking us to be in crisis and be strategizing long-term at the same time. And I think that's a lot to ask people. Um, so that helps me have empathy for the moment. Um, and if we don't do that, we're just going to be constantly trying to put bandages on these wounds that are just going to fester and grow bigger and bigger and bigger. So those two things are going on. Yeah, what you're saying is also making me wonder about how we resort to performing happiness because we can't tolerate the discomfort. And it's making me also wonder about like, is that the same as the way in which we perform wokeness or even perform alarm, right? Like I'm just thinking about like how like this desperation to like do something because we can't sit with the discomfort of, of like what is and the uneasiness and the fear. 
um, is, is, is pushing us to perform something and is, is the performance of wokeness, right. Is the performance even of like sound the alarm, a part of that knee jerk reaction. Yeah. I mean, I think for the folks who have certain privileges and luxuries, there is this performance of wokeness as a way to feel like they're doing something right. Like I do think that like, uh, you most people in their hearts want to figure out how to be good, how to have meaningful lives, how to belong. Right. Um, so, so that performance is also, again, I, I think that, and, and I, and I know I, I tend to do this. We can't tolerate slowness either that, you know, that again, like real systemic change is slow. Right. So whether it's, folks that have a lot of privilege wanting to rush into some feeling of doing something or folks who are in survival because they're being targeted, needing to move fast to survive, right? Again, you know, so much is how do we hold these really opposite needs at the same time, right? The need for immediate care, immediate, like again, the wound, we need to get it to stop from bleeding, right? And long-term strategizing. And this is like a, a rejiggering of the ways that especially those of us here in the West have been conditioned. You know, it goes against individualism. It goes against extraction capitalism, right? It goes against speed. Yet it also asks us to hold those realities at the same time. Um, I love it. I mean, like, to me, I feel like anytime we grow, like everything just gets blasted, right? And it's super painful. And it's the only way change can happen. It's the only way change can happen. And so, you know, my hope is that the voices, you know, like yours, like so many of the activists out there, you know, asking us to like really listen to the scientists out there. I hope that those voices can really guide us in this moment. I want to be transparent that you've got me also critically thinking about my own call to action. And when is that coming from a centered place? Because I, you know, I so appreciate the paradox of urgency. And it reminds me of the bio Akomalafe quote, these times are urgent, we must slow down, right? Mm -hmm. And how contradictory that feels, right? Especially in dominant culture. But I just want to like name that you've got me thinking about like, when is it appropriate to like move to action? Because these times are urgent, right? Like, because the climate crisis is urgent, because structural racism is urgent, right? Because people are being disposed of, right? Mm -hmm. And this is urgent and it demands our response. And when am I reacting from a place of discomfort? Because I can't tolerate the the heartbreak of this moment. Yeah. And the truth is, I don't think there's a really great way to know that. So we also have to get really good at repair. We have to get good at messing up and taking, like running towards accountability, like Biamingas says, right? And repair. And I think like, to me, that's a really missing piece is, is how can we mess up and still stay together? And, and I feel like we have a low tolerance for that. I know that's something I really have to work on. There's certain people I have a high tolerance, I, they can mess up and there's repair because I have this feeling of connection with them, right? But, but for all of us, this reflection on how good are we at repair? Because unless we get good at that, we can't be in this messiness and stay united. Um, I think about, um, there's a beautiful Loretta Ross quote uh, from, a, from a podcast she did where she, she said, a bunch of people thinking the same thoughts, moving towards the same goal is a cult. And then she says, a bunch of people thinking different thoughts, moving towards the same goal is a movement. And so in our movements towards climate change and social justice, 
can we get a little bit better at repair with each other? Um, and also think about how do we broaden our circle of compassion? How do we broaden who we can include in this movement so that we can actually make some progress? So I think repair is the key in many ways. Well, and I love that that kind of level of discernment around how do we hold one another accountable, right? And acknowledge when impact happens without giving into sort of like the disposability culture. Mm -hmm. um, but what is the line, right? And how do we walk it together? Absolutely. And even, even beyond holding others accountable is holding ourselves accountable, like doing that ourselves so other people don't have to and creating spaces where holding ourselves accountable doesn't get us canceled or have us then become disposable, right? Like imagine if people came forward and said, hey, I, I messed up. Let me let me tell you about this before even it comes out because I realized it, right? The more that we're also leading with that, as you said, um, the more that we can, you know, as, as our dear friend Teo Drake says, be broken and brilliant, right? Hold all of those parts of ourselves in community with each other. And I think that's key. Well, I love that. And I, I also think it's like, you know, part of, of creating that culture is learning how to tell stories of people who have made mistakes and grown and who have, right. And like, how do we actually tell stories of people who have like made mistakes and like, like acknowledged impact and repaired relationship mm -hmm. and like actually changed. Right. And yeah. how do we like hold those stories, um, with as much gravity, right. And appreciation mm -hmm. as we hold the stories of like canceling people and yeah. watching people fuck up and, you know, <laughs> um, scramble to, you know, like, I feel like there's some like media, like, um, you know, addiction to that of like yeah. watching people flail and watching people fail and watching people struggle. Yeah. And I, and that feels, you know, that's sort of like, I feel like the shadow of social media is that like, yeah, well, it lets us off the hook, right? If we can see other people fuck up, right. Then we can be let off the hook about our, our implications in any of these systems and these broader dynamics. And I think the other piece, you know, to go back to this idea of anxiety and trauma I think that like our social media is like, there's a lot that's positive about it, but I think it's incredibly traumatizing because the way that our news is delivered to us, the ways that, you know, clickbait, like, like only things that are extreme get like the, the, the attention economy, right? Like everybody's trying to get our attention and there's no space for nuance. And when there's no space for nuance, that's where accountability and repair become even harder. Because when we are in binary thinking, which is a form of a fight flight response, we're only going to be in this separate divide, be with what's comfortable, right? So I think it's all connected. I want to, um, you just named trauma and I, I'd love for you to speak more on trauma because I have learned pretty much everything I know about trauma from you <laughs> and then like learn to like learn from other people from you. You've really been a teacher for me in that way. And <clears throat> it's been really foundational in like my understanding of, of, um, transformation and healing, but we hear people throw the word trauma around often without discernment as if like everything is trauma. Um, and so can you like level set for us? what trauma is and the different types of trauma that we're navigating. Yeah. You know, I think one important thing that I think about with trauma is that trauma is not the event. It's our response to the event or the circumstance. 
So what might be highly traumatic to one person might not be to somebody else. So trauma is our response. And so it's really not always our place to say to somebody, well, that wasn't traumatic because we don't know right? Or that was traumatic. It's really about their response. And so our response has a lot to do with many things like our level of support, our temperament, our physiology, our, you know, all those things. But, you know, in general, and you've heard me say this a bunch of times, trauma, a traumatic event is anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and respond. It's terrorizing. It's overwhelming. It's immobilizing. Um, and, and when we can't cope and respond, it's likely then that all the activation, all the energy that got mobilized for that event that never got to actually be utilized gets trapped in the body. And then we stay stuck, right? The event is stuck. All the coping strategies we never got to use get stuck. So that's an overarching um, definition. But then there's also all the different ways that we can be overwhelmed. It's not always an event, right? It can be a circumstance, right? Developmental trauma is when we are not attuned to by our caretakers. Um, those aren't events. That's just a circumstance that's chronic, that deeply impacts somebody's capacity to feel a sense of belonging, a sense of trust in the world, a sense that their needs matter. Um, and then, of course, we've got institutionalized and systemic trauma, which has to do with the ways that these larger systems of healthcare, education, politics, finance, housing, all those things that are meant to care for us actually can harm so many and only benefit a few. So, you know, I do think that the word trauma can be overused where folks are like, oh my gosh, that was so traumatizing. Like they didn't have, you know, the green juice I wanted, right? Um, and so I think the word gets overused and um, I think we really listen, need to listen to people if they're saying that something was traumatic, right? It also links into this, are we listening to survivors? Because someone might say, well, this was traumatic. And then we hear the story and we say, well, nah, that doesn't seem like it would be traumatic. So again, we need discernment, we need nuance, um, and it's, it's, it's complex. Um, and then, you know, um, some things can feel overwhelming to somebody. And from the outside, we think, well, how can that be overwhelming to you? Um, so again, I'm giving you a lot of complicated answers to this because, you know, as you know, my approach towards trauma is never a one size fits all, very dogmatic approach. It's about having a, you know, having an analysis and making sure that we're always complicating it because it, it's not the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate too, um, some of the, the clarity you're bringing around, like, um, the, the like relativity of trauma, like how, like what trauma is for one person might not be traumatic for another because it's conditional and relative. Um, and I'm just curious, I would imagine then the, like, the medicine um, or the response for how we address the shaping, right? And the patterns that um, manifest because of an event, right? That is the trauma that you're naming, how that's going to be different for different people. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, some of our traumas are these personal events, right? These like traumatic events that happen to us. And for some, they're interpersonal. They're about our relationships and there are a lot of wounding around relationship. And 
they definitely will manifest differently for people also based on culture, class, race, ethnicity, right? All the ways that we make meaning of things. Um, and, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, we, we, you know, we, it's so in our, the zeitgeist right now to be looking at privilege and power and oppression and, um, this sort of call out culture. But I do think that there is like a particular flavor of trauma that folks that have a lot of access have versus the flavor of trauma that folks who are targeted or marginalized have. Um, and, and they're both very real. And it's easy to look at, at, at people, you know, that are carrying a lot of privilege and say, oh, they're fine. And, and actually they're not, like, no one's fine. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, again, like this, idea of this rugged individualism that that many of us have internalized that we have to figure out how to be okay on our own we have to you know meditate our way into well-being like just meditate and breathe do yoga like those are really important tools and those are not relational tools and i think that actually our biggest trauma collectively as a culture and again speaking a little bit more to united states here in the westernized cultures is um isolation is our our internalizing of a message that says we have to be fine on our own. And I think this also connects to the climate because the only way that we're going to solve the climate crisis, you know, of course, we have to hold corporations accountable. There's so much that has to be done on a corporate level. And when we can build cultures of mutual care, we don't need as much stuff, right? Like if, if we're going to, if we're going to heal the planet, we need to heal our, our we need to reclaim and revitalize our sense of interdependence with each other and with the world. So I'm giving you a really long-winded answer because I think that oftentimes when we talk about trauma and mental health, we're talking about an individualistic sense of well-being. And the underlying cause, in my opinion, one of them is our lack of connection to each other and to the environment. What I what I love about what you're saying, because um, you're speaking to social, uh, systemic and institutional trauma, right, and the ways in which we are all impacted by it, but we're impacted in really different ways, like radically different ways, right? Because some of us are targeted, mm-hmm. and some of us benefit. Um, and yet, to your point, you know, even folks with a lot of proximity, right, are are probably being harmed. Um, I mean, I think we see that too, right? With like rates of addiction and deaths of despair and like, and 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 the, you know, epidemic of depression and loneliness. And so there's definitely some evidence that even folks with privilege and proximity um, are not well within systems of domination. And the other thing I hear you saying that feels super skilled is that in order for us to respond appropriately to systemic trauma, we actually have to have an analysis. (laughs) Like we actually have to have a political analysis and we have to locate ourselves like, okay, where am I situated in this dynamic system of oppression? And what does that mean about the ways in which like I'm contributing and I'm benefiting Mm -hmm. and also the ways in which I'm stuck. Right. And I'm, you know, um, and I'm also being harmed because to me, when I think about like the kind of coalition building and you just talked about collective care, right. The culture of collective care that we need to build across lines of difference. Like, I think it demands that level of skill and discernment for, Mm -hmm. cause it's, it's cause it's like, it's not like we're all being harmed by systems of oppression. That feels actually not specific enough. Exactly. 
Yeah. Like how are we, how are we all specifically being harmed? And then what is our responsibility? Right? So if I'm, you know, anxious and depressed because my life feels meaningless because I have the I have the resources to just pay for all the support I need and I'm not tapping into community support, right? And I'm overworked, even though I have a fat bank account, I'm still anxious, right? So that's what I see often with folks like upper class folks, upper middle class people or upper class, right? There's a lot of anxiety because people are working really hard and they're isolated, right? If they don't identify that part of their isolate, part of their anxiety is this isolation, is this um overvaluing their bank accounts, right? Like you can identify that and then think, what is my contribution to changing that, right? Because this also connects into meaning making, right? Like I think people want to feel like they're having an impact, but they're not, the average person thinks that they're, like is thinking too small in some ways, like, well, my impact is I'm going to have a, you know, my, my own business and make bazillions of dollars. Like really is that like, to me, that's like a small impact versus my impact is I'm going to, like change culture. I'm going to challenge the ways businesses are made. Um, so I think that when we locate ourselves within those systems, it benefits our own anxiety wherever we're located. Um, and it informs our responsibility. And, you know, I talk about this in the book that like, I think for, for a lot of folks, one thing that can help heal our trauma and anxiety is actually to like, uplift and support and impact the well-being of others in a positive way. You know, folks can get obsessed with self-help and therapy and me, 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 me. And, you know, a lot of folks do need all of that. And going, you know, I feel like I've taken this from you, from the me to the we, broadening our sense of self is one of the antidotes to anxiety. Well, and it's making me think about the Lilla Watson quote that I hear you always share. And it's one of my favorite quotes too, that says, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And, um, and I read a similar quote the other day because it, it makes me think about like the toxicity of allyship. Like when allyship is about like helping other people because other people, right? Like when it doesn't have that level of like, we're implicated and we're impacted too, then the way we help others is still othering. And it's also like super paternalistic and it actually maintains the power Mm -hmm. structure. It's like charity versus solidarity. And if we don't actually, I think, reckon with like our own skin in the game, I actually think we're just going to keep playing out this cycle where we're like helping other people, but we're holding on to our privilege mm-hmm. and, and not actually f- seeing that our well-being and liberation are in fact bound. Yeah. And, or we just flip it. We flip who has the power and who needs the help. And I think That's this right. is, you know, in this climate of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I say with air quotes, right, where I think more and more folks are, signing up for those workshops and asking for them and wanting it, but without interrogating inclusion into what, you know, like what, what's the foundation here? Um, Because oftentimes those efforts are basically about assimilation and inviting people targeted by the systems to then help uphold those systems. Right. So um, that's right. Like questioning all that again is, is so important because either we're going to maintain the status quo with the same players or we're just going to flip the status quo, right? And and have folks who've been historically marginalized sort of take the power position. 
Well, and not transform power, right? Which is what this is all about, right? Like just like shifting power around isn't actually transforming our relationship to power, right? One of my favorite quotes um, by Ruby Sales, by the great Ruby Sales is Mm -hmm. inclusion implies that someone owns the table, right? And so like, if you don't have that power analysis, but you're engaged in I air air quoting like you, diversity and inclusion efforts, you're actually just reenacting the same power structure. Mm-hmm. You're just moving the you're moving the chairs around in the room. Yes, yes, and I think that's where this idea of this like creative chaos or complicating the whole shebang um, is important, right? Is to really examine, you know, what are we even talking about? What what do we want to create together? And what how can we collectively imagine a world where human worth is not ranked, right? Where we are truly in this, and, and I don't even know what the answer to that is, but I think we have to risk asking that question. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially in a moment when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities in our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 per month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen well. You talked about wellness, so I want to touch on this, since this is obviously a culture and community that you and I are a part of and both have a lot of feelings about. (laughs) We're both inside of it and we have lots of feelings. Um, And I want to talk about it in the context of of mental health and trauma, because, you know, I have struggled this year with mental health. I've struggled before, but what was different about this experience was how debilitating it was for me, how I wasn't able to perform everyday tasks, complete projects, like participate in the world. And the most frustrating part was that there was no quick fix for me, right? There was like all of the tools and resources that I've employed in the past and that we often talk about, um, including the many wellness practices, right? That we've dedicated our life to weren't effective in helping me regulate my nervous system, right? Like they weren't working. And in fact, like, I think, you know, I can look back now and see how like my scrambling to try and like find the quick fix, like what is the wellness regimen? What is the individual medicine (laughs) that can address what I'm experiencing 
caused even more suffering. And it just made me reflect on how, you know, on like what our nervous systems are up against, right? How meditation is not always a match for a culture of capitalism that thrives on our not enoughness, right? That shames us for simply being human and, and how we may need to think differently about how we respond to, like, to, to the chronic and the global dysregulation of these times, right? Versus just turning to wellness. So I'm curious, like, what you think about that. Like, how do we, what is the role of self-regulation, mm-hmm. right? Because I know that that really matters in how we hold this moment, right? And, and move through, um, through, move through the chaos, as you say, and what's beyond that. Yeah. That addresses you know, like the systemic nature of what we're facing. Right. So I think there's the three layers. There's the self, there's self-regulation and there's co-regulation that we need to be held with others, right? Especially when the problem is so big, right? When when our when our anxiety is coming because of these things that are untenable, global pandemic, climate crisis, we can't wrap our minds around those. And unless you're like directly working on those issues, There's nothing to immediately do that's going to show a result. So, you know, we need, in order to manage our trauma and our pain, we need to be held by something bigger than us. And that thing that's bigger is community. For some people, it's religion, a spiritual belief system, nature. So the first piece is, if I think I have to hold it myself, all the meditation in the world ain't going to help. Like you can't breathe your way out of something that's so big. But if I am reaching out to friends, allowing myself to be in community, if I have a bigger thing holding me, then maybe I can sit and use meditation as well to support me, right? And if I am using my meditation and mindfulness to know myself, I'm going to be able to be in community because if we don't have a little bit of that self-awareness, it's going to be hard for other people to trust us, right? So there is this relationship between self-regulation and co-regulation, right? So, you know, you, you've, you've probably met or been at points this type of person that other people can't be around because our stuff is out of control. We're not aware of it. So we're blaming, we're shaming, we're pushing people away. When we get isolated like that, it's very overwhelming. And so I, I see this relationship between that. Um, and then, yeah, it's like we're meditating in a burning building. Like, actually, we need to do, like, what are the larger structures outside of us that have to be addressed? And so again, it's this idea of all these things have to happen simultaneously. We mm. do need our personal practices, like drink enough water. Like mm-hmm. the world will be overwhelming. And take responsibility like, for yourself. And take responsibility for yeah. your shit. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to be graceful about it. Know you're being an asshole. That, you know, people can be around you if you're like at least aware of that, Right ask for help and offer support. So I just finished reading Mia Birdsong's book, How We Show Up. So good. Oh my God. And really like, I'm so into queering all my relationships, you know, of like letting people know what I need and letting them know specifically what I can offer if I think it might be what they need, right? This idea of, you know, my sister's having a baby in a couple months and I told her, I'm going to rearrange my schedule. Here's what I can do. Like, you don't have to, if this is not what you need, you tell me, but you know, versus this vague, like, I'm here for you. Like I'm prepared to cook meals, do, you know, do clean the toilet, rub your feet, right? Like what are the specific ways we're going to be there for people? Um, and then what's the analysis that again, helps us locate our suffering 
and locate our role. You know, like I think about my life and I feel like I am, I have so much privilege. I live in this beautiful home. I can turn an air filter on if the air quality is bad. I've got a water filter, right? Like I feel like I'm in this bubble that protects me, right? It's only, it's only gonna protect me so much. But if I can have enough protection to think about these larger issues and think about how I might contribute in a way that somebody else might not because they're dealing with the immediate impact of the climate crisis, the immediate impact of poverty, right? I can locate my suffering and go, yeah, I'm stressed because of these other reasons, but here's a place where I have a little bit more space and capacity. So what does that mean, you know? Can you can you go a little bit deeper on um, co-regulation? Because um, I feel like this is a concept that a lot of us think is really cute. Like this idea that like we need each other, but we don't like give as much validity to as like the self-regulation practices and even like the the systemic responses. And, you know, when I was, when I was going through this experience this year, you know, I did a ton of research into like the scientific underpinnings of co-regulation and how in fact you cannot heal in isolation, right? Like not fully, like it's to your point, like there's a role for it and it's limited. And so can you just describe for folks for whom co-regulation is like a newer concept, like what is it and how does it work? Yeah, there's several levels, right? So on a very basic level, co-regulation has to do with the ways that our nervous systems, when we are in proximity to each other, can impact each other, right? You think about the bond between a child and the parent, right? This way that we deal with little little babies, right? We, we hold them on our bodies, we rock them, we mirror them. So, so take that, the really like, you know, we all were babies at some point and we, our survival depended on attunement and co-regulation with a caretaker, right? Now, you don't need that when you're 30, you don't need to be held and, and mirrored in that way, but we need a version of that, right? So a version of having relationships of people that are physically proximate to us, which again, got very compromised in the pandemic, right? Where there is touch, attunement, mirroring, safety, belonging. And I do think this is something we can do virtually. We can see each other's facial cues and social cues on a screen. We can talk on the phone and hear tone, right? But also in these days of texting, for example, which again, I think some people can create connections like that, but we want to hear tones. We want to feel heard. So, you know, I've been thinking about co-regulation as the ways in which we get all up in each other's business. <laughs> Mia Birdsong talks about this, right? This is not just about every six months you have lunch with somebody and catch up, right? It's, are you calling that person in that moment of crisis saying, I don't know what to do right now. I just need to hear your voice, right? Are we being messy with each other? Um, are we, you know, and are we reaching out, you know, when we know like this person is going to isolate, like, I feel like I forced you to do a couple hikes with me when I knew you were, you know, in that state, right? People did that with me when they know that, you know, and you know, and I'll, I'll just say that, like you did that in a moment of like real suffering for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't at a point where I was ready to reach out for, to people and ask for help. So like that, like your timing or your intuition, or even mm -hmm. just like the randomness of that outreach was, yeah. was actually like really essential to my sort of like climbing out of my cave. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
we have a hard time doing that. Like, I don't want to bother people or whatever, but I'm kind of learning, like most of us actually want connection. Like, so, you know, to err on the side of like, Hey, like, let's hang out. I want to be present with you versus oh, I'm just, I'm going to sit back. Like, you know, I think so many of us are like sitting back and, and wanting more connection. Um, so how do we risk that? How do we risk that? And, and, you know, even like, you know, like who are the, who are the people that just kind of keep tabs on you that like, if you were to not, like if you were to disappear would know, like, and I think for, for especially like single, single folks or folks who live alone, there can be this feeling of like, if I disappeared, like it would, no one would know. Right. So are we, are, you know, if you, if you live alone, if you're single, who could be that other person? You could be like, Hey, can we just check in like every night to say goodnight to make sure the other one's alive? You know, the ways that we feel like our, our existence is meaningful in the lives of other people and would be noticed if it wasn't there. Um, so there's lots of different expressions and look, some people are more introverted. They don't want to, they don't want to be touched or they don't want to talk to somebody every day. What's your version? of co-regulation? What's your version of connection that still honors your need for solitude and to be alone as well? Mm. I want to, um, I want to just touch on sort of how, what you're naming translates politically into this moment. Um, and I'm just thinking about the role of co-regulation in the biology of safety and, and what we're seeing sort of play out around the country with the politics of division and the politics of, of fear. And you just named this, but like, we all have this deep seated need, um, for belonging and safety and dignity, right? We're all scanning to, to understand, like, do I belong? Am I safe? Right. Do I matter? Um, and when that's, in question, it can cause us to act out, right? To buy into disinformation and conspiracy, to lash out against each other, to scapegoat, right? The most yeah. vulnerable, um, to follow authoritarian strongman leaders, right? Um, and so I'm just wondering, like, how do you see this sort of practice of like, tending to our bodies and our biology, leveling up politically so that maybe we can shift our relationship to like the chaos of this moment, but also shift our relationship to each other. Yeah. You just said so much. So I want to figure out what, how I want to focus this. So first I want to like reiterate that. Yes. I think that, um, that fear can, can cause us to want to hold on to oversimplified explanations for what's going on, which would be that person, that small group of people has a conspiracy to hurt me. So if I can just fight against them or shut them down, then I will be okay. Right? So that's one way that I think people are vulnerable to conspiracy theories because they're simple. You can wrap your mind around them. There's clearly the protagonist and, you know, the, you know, and then you can be the hero or whatever that is. And then there's the fear that says, let me just figure out how me and mine can be okay. Just like my people, because we can't all be okay. And plus they're the bad ones anyways, right? These are all really simple ways to tell stories about what is overwhelming us and to, to create solu quote unquote solutions. Um, and so again, if we, if we can use our tools to stay with our fear, then we can really, again, navigate with more clarity what the fear is about. But our, the knee-jerk reaction is not going to be actually the most skillful one. 
or the most accurate one, right? So, um, you know, so like I know that like when I, if I get really upset and I'm not using my tools, my first thing is clearly it's my husband. It's his fault <laughs> like, or it's my kids, right? Like I'm going to go to whoever's closest to me and make it about them. And, and if I didn't have tools, I would pick a fight with my husband or yell at my children, right? But then I can use my tools to say, okay, okay, Holla, just check in. Like go pause, take a breath. Um, oh, actually this other thing is going on. Actually, I'm feeling out of control. Actually, I'm worried that I'm not being a good parent. Actually, this okay, now my fear has more nuance. And the truth is that like when we do that, our nervous system will usually settle, right? Even if the fear doesn't go away, when we find a way to be with it and get a little bit more of like, oh, the fullness of the picture of what's going on, um, then the way I make meaning of it is going to be different. So I think that this this has political implications. And of course, it's not that simple. There's so many other factors. And, um, and I think that the more that we are in relationship to our fear, the more open we can be to questioning the source of it. Um, and the more that we can, again, build these alliances, even with folks who might not have the exact same analysis, right? But like, can it be like close enough for us to work towards a similar goal, right? So like someone said this to me once about, um, abortion, right? That like folks focus on like pro-life, pro-choice and we're fighting, but actually both groups would like to prevent unwanted pregnancies. So like, could we actually unite on like some common conversations about preventing unwanted pregnancies, but we get caught in the, in the fight, right? So how do we find that common ground again, even if it's not exactly right? And I think that that can transform this binary political climate that we are in, at least from a grassroots level. I think that, again, that also has to be done from the top down. Yeah, it's funny because even during like all of the QAnon wellness stuff, you know, we were doing all of this research around how do we respond effectively, right? Mm -hmm. To the very strong feelings that for many of us, people in our family and in our communities and on our yoga studios and on our social media feed have, right? Um, against science or against vaccines. And, you know, one of the things that we learned in all of our research and practice is that, um, that it's not so much about like negating or arguing or or being right or having like the better education it's actually about showing people a way of being in community it's about showing people like another experience of like what it is to to take care of one another yeah. to have a culture where like everybody feels seen and acknowledged, right, and and cared for, um, and validated, and and so it shifted how we were actually responding because we were like, instead of putting so much energy behind disrupting and provoking, and you know, we were like, let's actually just like be the change, like let's actually show yeah. people what it is to yeah. be a community of collective care, yeah. and give them time to like 
find their way in, right? And show them that like we can be in disagreement and conflict and actually still be a community of collective care. Mm -hmm. And so that really shifted our organizing strategy um, to be one of like, you know, of of really of like um, a prefigurative, right, embodiment. Like let's just embody the culture that we want to be and show people there's a better way. Yeah, and I think that like, Often those of us on the left, we say we want that, but we don't want to give it to those people, right? Like we'll do it with the people that are close enough to That's our right. belief system. Kazuhaga talks about that. Yes, yes. You know, and like, I think that like his, you know, his book, Healing Resistance, like really is calling on us to, 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 to make that uncomfortable step of like, are we going to sit in curiosity and compassion with like law enforcement and racist, you know, like until we do that, like our movement's not going anywhere. And that's really hard. That points us right back to abolition and the conversation we were having before about accountability mm-hmm. and, um, and how like we have to live right into a life affirming practice. Yeah. Right. And my friend Anasa Troutman, who, you know, says yes. we can't transform something that we don't love. And it's like, we really mm-hmm. do need to like, look at the places where like, we're not, we're not like all in, like our liberation is bound and we want everybody to be free, but do we really mean it? Right. And so what does it look like to mean it, to, to, to actually fight for the liberation and the, the, you know, uh, your book is called peace from anxiety. I'm like, what does it look like to fight for this for everyone, regardless of what side they're on? And I just want to name, like, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm really holding that question critically. Like, like, what are the ways in which I'm reinforcing that divide and actually not fighting for everyone? Yeah. And, and how is that holding us all back? Yeah. And I think we all have a different answer to that question. I think that's an amazing question, right? And for some people, the question is, I just need to figure out how to, like, support my community because my community is in crisis and not supported by everybody else, right? For some of us, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move towards people who are radically different than me to have this conversation. I think we all have different answers. And I think that like the answer has to be kind of scary for it to be authentic in a way. And at at least for me, right? Like, like, like I I can give you the warm and fuzzy answer of like the people I want to like get to know because they're different from me, but I'm, I'm probably talking about people like on the left who have, you know, who have similar belief systems to me. Um, and for me in this, like, white light skinned body with the access I have, I actually need to turn with the, to the folks that like, I don't actually want to hang out with that. I, you know, I feel really uncomfortable with. Um, and I think we all have different answers to it, but that's the question for sure. Well, it reminds me of this one quote in your book that blew my mind that said, sometimes our anxiety is the energy of fear resisting this pull to transform. We could have a whole podcast about all of the ways I do this in my life. Uh But I just also think we're seeing this on a meta level right now. People are desperate, right? To cling to the status quo or to return to so-called normal, right? In this time of deep fear and chaos and uncertainty and, you know, simultaneous pandemics. And so, um, I'm just curious, you know, as we kind of close this conversation, how do we navigate the the anxiety around transforming right into the, like, like, like it makes me think about that quote where it's like, um, we fear the person that we're becoming. I forget who said that, mm. but like, right. Like we actually fear the change. We fear um, the possibility that we could become. And so like, how do we navigate that? Yeah. You know, I say like, 
go small. Find like the small places where you can let go and feel into that transformation. Because if we think, well, I have to change my whole life and then we're going to contract and fight it. What are the small things that you can reflect on and say, all right, whether it's things like I'm going to be a little bit less busy, right? Like pandemic for some people like slowed us down. We didn't have access. Now we just want to get back to business. How do we shift that? The pandemic for some of us forced us to make our circles a little bit smaller. And for some people, I think that was also really healing of like, I'm going to pick the one or two people I'm totally. seeing. We're going to make agreements about that. So then we then maybe like don't rush into opening it up. I mean, we want to open it up in certain ways because we want to be connected. And are we diluting the meaningfulness of, of less? Like, so in what ways is less more? Maybe the pandemic forced us to rely on each other more. Well, maybe keep doing that. Don't then stop relying, you know, maybe say to your, your people like, listen, I know now kids can maybe take the bus to school, but the carpooling and the being together was so meaningful, you know, let's do this to maintain connection. I mean, it's something I'm doing right now as my kids are getting ready to go back to school is I'm not going to put them on the bus in both directions. Like we're going to carpool in one direction because that gets them in the car with the kids in the neighborhood. And even though it's inconvenient, it's in the service of building community and connection. So mm. for me in my life, that's been my question is like where I'm all about efficiency and speed, but that for me can create isolation. Cause I'm, I'm like, I can outsource things a lot more. Um, and now I'm like, no, there I'm going to drive to El Segundo, you know, three days a week because that 30 minutes in the car with my son and his friends is a time to connect. Right. So I, I think that like reflecting on, the small things, because again, if we, if we make it too big, we're not going to do it. I love that. And I feel like so much, especially in politics and, and, you know, organizing for systemic change, we skip over like intimate relationships and go right to like the big meta change or the big movement change. And I also hear in what you're saying, like intimacy, like where can we like strengthen bonds, right? And deepen relationship and like prioritize that as the way in which we center life and humanity over all the other fucked up things that we're swimming in. Yeah. And I, I see this as culture change work because as I'm raising children who value interdependence, right, they're going to grow up to be adults with that paradigm. As I'm engaging other families to be deliberately interdependent, I see them like we're inspiring each other, right? So like, imagine if everybody was doing that. And again, some folks have to do that. They don't have the, the there aren't the, the larger um, resources supporting them, right? You go to poor and working class communities and folks' lives are embedded because they have to be, right? That's also present too. I love that. It's sort of like, we may not know how to do this, but we need to actually live into it. <laughs> like yeah. we may not know, right? Like we have to live into it. We have to practice it. We have to like actually try and embody the, the, the people that we want to become or that we need to become to survive. Yeah. And build these, you know, Adrian Marie Brown talks about it. Like let's build it in our little organizations and in our communities, like what we want to have on a systemic level. A lot of us don't have that personally yet. We're fighting for it collectively. Yes. And that's going to be a disconnect. I love this so much. I love, I mean, you and I have like had like so many conversations that in our history of being friends and co-conspirators that, that have pushed me and taught me and changed me. And this is just one more of those conversations, Hala. I learned uh, so much from you. This book that you've written is just 
fucking exactly what we need right now. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank I feel you. the same way about you, Carrie, and I can't wait for your book. Ah! Um, oh my gosh. I love you. Thank you for the gifts that you bring. Thank you for always um, saying the hard things and mm. pushing us to do the uncomfortable, deep, meaningful um, work in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. I love you. I love you. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to explore the practice of repair. And Hala's book, Peace from Anxiety, is a perfect companion for that practice. You can buy the book at halakori.com and follow her on Instagram at halayoga. Full links and resources in the show notes. Special shout out to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. To our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And big gratitude to the amazing team at Citizen Well that is bringing our mission to life. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities that care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. <laughs>